Open the Word of God with me to John chapter 7. As you open the book you hold in your lap, a very wonderful heritage and precious treasure that we have by the providence of God, the labors and the blood of many men. Be thankful and rejoice. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Let us humble ourselves before John chapter 7 as I read to you the first nine verses. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Amen and amen. Thank you, brothers that have gone before me by way of prayer in the back room, by way of singing, praying, and preaching already from God's Word this morning. Expository preaching. Like we are now about to do again and resume in John chapter 7, is not to fill up the calendar, but to learn about our Lord. We want to learn about His glory and greatness as the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. We want to believe on Him to a greater and greater, more personal degree for more assurance of eternal life. We want to learn the historical details that God himself counted sufficiently valuable to have included in Holy Scripture. John said that if all the things Jesus did had been written, the world itself could not contain the books. Therefore, the few paragraphs that we have about our Lord's life must be of great importance for him to retain them for us. We want to see man's depravity so that we will more fully appreciate and praise his salvation of us. We want to see our Lord's wisdom in how he deals with friends, evangelistic opportunities, and enemies. We want to gain in conviction today. Conviction. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ Do you love the man Christ Jesus that is right here in these words before us? If you love him, what will you do or not do for him? What is too precious in your little base life that you do not want to give him that he asks for? Let us be convicted as we read these words, lest we be like his brothers to some degree and not love him, not believe on him, and not follow him, but be willing to depart and leave him in Galilee. Where do you think Mary would be? 
Do you think Mary would depart and go to Jerusalem without him? No. Do you think the apostles would? No. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So we have a few minutes today to let the word of God speak to us by the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon prepared hearts by regeneration and hopefully by your preparation. And let's see if the Lord will encourage us this morning to love his son more dearly and to learn the things that he's put here in these verses for us. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. The things that are referred to there are the things of John chapter 6. His healing in the area, remember, John 5, was, he was on trial for his life, and he left Judea to go to Galilee. In Galilee, he healed, he fed the 5,000, he calmed the storm, he walked the sea, he had that long discourse with those that said they wanted to follow him, those that said they wanted him to be their king, and then they all turned away. That was a long chapter, chapter 6. And those were the things in Galilee that took place first. Now he's still in Galilee. And after those things, Jesus stayed there in Galilee, the backwoods district of the Jews, the, the hill country of the Jews. And I, I mean no disrespect to anyone that came from the hills. We're in a hilly part of the country. As you drive toward Charleston, it gets a lot flatter than it is here. So we're from the hill country, lest anyone be offended. The events of John 6, from traveling the Sea of Galilee to losing many of his disciples, is what has gone before. Those events were in very early spring before the Passover, because it tells us that in verse 4 of chapter 6. The Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall of our calendar in September or October. So we've covered six months or so in that year, and there's been some delay, and he has stayed in Galilee. Jesus walked in Galilee. That was the territory around the Sea of Galilee. It was about 1,500 square miles, 60 miles long and 25 miles wide. Nazareth, where he grew up as a boy, was about 20 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. He grew up there after Joseph had brought him back from Egypt to save him from Herod's decree to kill the young children. And he was called Jesus of Nazareth for the rest of his life. On the cross, he was identified as Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, because that was an identifier that separated him from many other Jewish boys that were called Joshua. It was a very common name, so he was called Jesus of Nazareth from the Galilean area of Palestine. Palestine being a Roman word for the territory of the Jews. There were three segments to it. The northern one was Galilee, 1,500 square miles. Then there was the big buffer zone of Samaria. Remember how we learn in John chapter 4 to get from Judea to Galilee, you had to pass through Samaria? And that's when he met the woman of Samaria. Then the bottom third of Palestine was Judea. The, the ten tribes had been long taken captive, so we had Judea left of Judah and Benjamin, Samaria, and then the topmost segment of Palestine was Galilee, and Jesus is there. You know, when Paul was called a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, what is that referring to? He's a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. It is not saying he was a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a person that took a particular vow, specified in detail in Numbers chapter 6 on them, to worship God differently for a period of time. Or in the case of Samson, for the duration of his life. But Jesus was from Nazareth, which is different than being a Nazarite. Now look at it. It says he walked in Galilee. That means anyone in Judea had been left by him for the time being. Think about it. He's in Galilee, the backwoods district of Israel, not, in, not where the movers and shakers were. Jerusalem was important. All the leadership was in Jerusalem. All the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, the Levites, the priests, the Herodians, they're in Jerusalem. But Jesus is, is out in the Piedmont. He's not in D.C. He's in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, if you, if you will. And what I want you to notice from this fact that he walked in Galilee, if you neglect or reject this king, which they did in Judea, like Lady Wisdom, he will leave you alone. 
He will give you what you want. And we don't want Him to give us what we want. We want Him to overpower us and come to us and draw us to Him that we might run to Him. He did not hide or neglect His work in any way. Notice that it says He walked. That doesn't mean an exercise program around the Sea of Galilee. It means that He continued to walk among the people and do good among them as was His ministry. If we cannot do what we should in some place, there's likely a place where we can do what we should. And so don't be afraid to change your place if you can do more good for the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus did. There was more good that he could do in Galilee at this particular time than there was in Judea. Now it says in that first verse, after these things of John 6, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he would not walk in Jewry. Jewry is only used twice in the Bible, and it refers to Judea, the place of the Jews, the primary place of the Jews, the territory of the former tribe of Judah. It only occurs in the Bible twice, and this is one of them. He stayed his distance from Judea and Jerusalem because they wanted to kill him back there. Why did they want to kill him? There's an event that took place, two chapters removed, backward, that we need to remember because we're going to run into it again later in this chapter when Jesus rebukes the Jews for wanting to kill him for not having wisdom about what he did. So let's go back, just turn back two chapters to John chapter 5 and verse 16, and we can find out why he was in Galilee and didn't want to be in Jewry or Judea or Jerusalem, because they wanted to kill him there, and it was not his time to die yet. Right. He operated by a timetable, and the timetable was from heaven. And God would interpose on his behalf to keep the Jews from violating that timetable, and he made adjustments to keep from violating that timetable from time to time. John chapter 5 is the pool of Bethesda. And the impotent man that was there for many years that couldn't get into the stirred water and be healed, so the Lord Jesus Christ came and healed him anyway. But it tells us this in verse 16. And therefore, John 5, 16, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Those poor little men just couldn't handle Jesus healing on their Sabbath day. Jesus will rebuke them for their hypocrisy in the middle of John 7 by pointing out, I made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath, and you condemn me and want to kill me, yet you cut men on the Sabbath by circumcising them. You are hypocrites. Judge righteous judgment. Don't judge by the appearance this is Jesus speaking, judge righteous judgment. Right. And so this is going to come back, and, and we're, having it, we're being reminded of it right now. Why did they want to kill him in Jerusalem? Because he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Then, as we learned in John 5, he did not modify his message to increase the multitude. He magnified himself, and it reduced the multitude and increased their chagrin and hatred of him. So we read in verse 17, but Jesus answered them. Since they wanted to kill him, in verse 16, Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And we read those verses and studied those verses when we were in John 5. But back to John 7, we want to stay on pace if the Lord will bless us in learning the first nine verses of John 7. That's why he wouldn't walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. You know, sometimes it's right to hide. Galilee was the backwoods district and separated by Samaria was a safe place to go. It was about 70 miles from Jerusalem, north. And so look at 
Asheville. What do we know about Asheville? What do we care about Asheville? And we have cars that can get us there in an hour. They couldn't get anywhere in an they couldn't get anywhere in an hour except four or five miles. For those of you that know what a treadmill pace is at four or five or six miles an hour, if you're very thin and in great shape and are able to walk fast, you know, we can only cover six miles. But, you know, we don't care about Asheville. We don't know what's going on up there. There's, there's a separation by distance, and there was a great separation there in Jesus' time, plus that territory in the middle was Samaria. And the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. And it wasn't a pleasant place to travel through. So Jesus has separated himself from the political and religious leaders of Israel by being in Galilee. He didn't really fear those rabid murderers down there in Jerusalem. He was prudent to bide his time. And he had work to do in Galilee. There were men to be converted there, and he converted them. The Apostle Paul fled the city of Damascus in a basket when the king of that city made an order that the city was to be sealed up and the Apostle Paul taken captive. The disciples let him down through a window in a basket and he left town that way. And he refers to that as being part of his resume in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, though it's told to us in the book of Acts. And so sometimes it's wise to hide and we may come back to this point, but I, I want to remind you that it's not boldness, it's not Christian courage that wants to stand out in front of guys with an X on your chest like British soldiers called redcoats and take a bullet for Jesus. You run as long as you can until running would be sin by denying the Lord. Paul ran. Jesus went and hid in Galilee. I want to remind you about William Tyndale. William Tyndale translated the Bible into the first printed English version of the Bible called the Tyndale Bible in the 1500s. He did most of his work in Europe on the mainland, the continent of Europe, because the persecution became so great in England that he couldn't stay there. And he was only returned to England by the betrayal of what had been considered a friend and there he was burned at the stake. And there, in the flames of that fire, he said, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. But he, he went and hid because he was able to do his work on the continent, avoiding them. There's no sin in running until they put you to the, the question, you, we don't lie. If you were asked, do you submit to the Pope of Rome? as the authority of Jesus Christ on earth. You wouldn't lie, which is being a different way of running at that moment, because to do so would be sin. But to go and hide is not sin, it's just prudence right. enough. Because the Jews sought to kill him. Jesus came to die, and he knew his father's business for his life, but he knew it wasn't time yet. You know, he told his apostles, when they persecute you in one city flee to another city. You say, Pastor, why would you waste time in John 7 bringing that point up? Our children may well put it into practice. Right. After we're gone, we shall see what the Lord allows to have happen in America. They hate us enough right now. Take away the liberties that protect us and we'll see what happens. Just understand, young men, it's okay to run and hide. And our brethren have ran and hid for 2,000 years. Right. They've hid in the forests of Bohemia. They have hid in the Alps of northern Italy in the shadow of the Vatican. The Waldensians hid for 1,000 years. They hid in the catacombs under the city of Rome. They ran and hid in the mountainous regions of Wales, which is, which is west from London and out of the, out of the general traveled area of England. And there they had churches for 2,000 years until they could come to America and have the freedom that we enjoy. Not as much as we enjoy. Some of them were persecuted. Some of them had to come down to the P.D. River for to get away from the state churches of the north. And even here in South Carolina, what was the state church? The Church of England. When you paid your taxes, you supported Church of England ministers. But thankfully, there were some Baptist brethren who liked to name churches like 
the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ and put it on Church Street at the end of Screven Street and next to it had the Church of England at the end of Broad Street. That's all in Georgetown for your, for your viewing at any time you want to make that trip. Thank you, Lord, for such men. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. At hand means it was approaching close. The Jews had three main feasts. I hope you saw them last evening in reading Leviticus chapter 23. The Jews had three main feasts. The Passover came first in their calendar. Our March or April, and you know that because it's associated with that Easter holiday that is approaching. And that was to commemorate their exodus out of Egypt. The Passover, when they put blood on the doorposts of their homes and the death angel passed over them and killed only the firstborn in the families of the Egyptians. Next, and I, and I wanted you to look for it in Leviticus 23, it's called the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks later plus one day, which is 50. So the Feast of Weeks is also called Pentecost, like a pentagram, because it's 50. And it came 50 days later, called the first of weeks or the first fruit, the, the feast of weeks, the feast of first fruits, or the feast of Pentecost. Three different names. It came in May, and it was to give thanks for the first of the wheat harvest. Then was the feast of tabernacles. A tabernacle is a temporary dwelling place, it's not a house. Remember why David wanted to build God a temple? Because he didn't think that tent or that tabernacle of Moses was good enough for the Lord. So it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or booths or in-gatherings because it was a, the, the mean, a seven-day feast to celebrate harvest and the bringing in of, of all the produce of that agricultural year. And it occurred in September, October. Now it was called Tabernacles or booths or in-gatherings. In-gathering, you know what that's referring to, the harvest aspect. Booths or tabernacles is they had to take branches of certain trees and build themselves little huts and live in those huts for a week to remember what it was like in Egypt and what it was like in the wilderness for 40 years so they would appreciate their houses in Israel. Right. You know, do you think that might help some of our children? who complain about a 2,000-square-foot house because they don't have a 4,000-square-foot house like their friends do? How about make them live outside in the yard, rain or shine, for a week in a pup tent? And let me deal with the pup tent before you use it, and I'll take that water repellent off it. Uh, we want to help them be thankful. You know, whenever I tried camping at a very young age, there was sufficient poverty around that uh, the water repellent was always poor. So I learned something about camping in those days. But that's what they did. A week, a year, every year, a week. The Feast of Booths, so it was called a booth, it was called a tabernacle, so it was Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles to teach them something. And we, you know, we're so blessed. Are you thankful every day for the things that we have? Do you, do you shout it out? Do you, do you get it out to tell the Lord? Sherry and I have had a great week. We love spring. I love spring. And just to think about all the good things the Lord's given us. He has saved us from so much. Daniel did a great job of the blessings we have, of the forgiveness of sins, the protection, the blessing that he, that he showers upon us. We ought to be glad and rejoice. If you're not, it's you. It is not your circumstances because your circumstances are better than everyone before you that has been glad and rejoiced. Paul and, si and Silas sang in the prison, the dungeon in Acts chapter 16 and gave praises at midnight with blood running from their backs naked and chained up hands and feet. We can be thankful and we should be and give great thanks to the Lord. We don't need to go live in a tent for a week, a year. We should just do it by thinking about some of these things rather than actually having an experience like that. Right. Now it says in verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. We don't want to miss a word that the Lord has for us. It says the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. 
you're not a Jew. Therefore, you don't need to keep, neither should you keep, neither should you even explore in detail the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles because it's Jewish and it's 2,000 years dead. I am very sad and sorrowed and angered by some churches that want to get into Old Testament practices and practice some of their holidays exploring tabernacle furniture. The Bible tells us not to exercise ourselves with meats, using meats as a synecdoche for all of the other appurtenances of the Old Testament ceremonial worship. And that's in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9 that tells us not to do that because no one's been profited by it. Real profit is going to the New Testament where we have the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament only being the shadows of that reality. They're only obscure indicators of what's going to come. Why would you want to look, as I've said before, if I wanted to show you my wife, would I show you her or her shadow on the ground? You know, we're standing outside in a couple of hours if it clears up and if we have shadows, and I say, I'd like you to meet my wife. Do you see her shadow? That's a pastor that wants to preach the Old Testament. God's made us able ministers of the New Testament, where we have the reality of the things of Christ and the grace of God. So when it says the Jewish, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles, why does it say that? Why doesn't it just say, now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand? Would everyone basically understand that? Or do we need a little reminder? Especially today, we need a little reminder. There are men that are quite popular for speakers around the world right now who are specialists in the furniture of the tabernacle. And it is cute. It is cute to have a little wooden uh, laver and a little wooden table for the candelabra and a little Ark of the Covenant and to pick it up and put it in there. You know, it should remind you of being in a Sunday school class for four-year-olds. They want fables. rather, And that's not a fable because it was true, but it was only a shadow of the reality. Lord, help us. If you're not a Jew, you shouldn't waste your time with Jewish feasts. Jesus even told the woman of Samaria, Woman, the hour comes where they're not even going to be worshiping me in truth in the city of Jerusalem. Because those things were imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And we're on the other side of the time of Reformation. Lord, help us to remember that. It was at hand. The latter part of the year. This is the feast that had fallen into neglect until Ezra preached it. Do you remember Nehemiah chapter 8 well? You know, we quote verse 8 from it often. It's already been quoted once in this assembly. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. It's the greatest preaching service described in the Bible in the sense that we are given more details about what transpired in that preaching service and how it was done, the, the, the attitude and spirit and actions of the people leading up to the preaching, the attitude and response of the people after the preaching. It's, it's all detailed there in Nehemiah chapter 8. But after we get through those first 13 verses or so, or 12 verses, we get to verse 13. The rest of the chapter is, they asked Ezra to preach to them again the next day. So Ezra preached to them again the next day. They were able to cover cover some more territory in Exodus and Leviticus. And they found out that the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles hadn't been kept for hundreds of years. And so they gladly went out and grabbed a bunch of branches and stuff, and they stayed in booths to try to make up for the fact that it hadn't been celebrated for years. Now, to me, that's very weighty. Out of Nehemiah chapter 8, it's one of the weightiest points. It is one thing, after hearing preaching, to do this. Amen, brother! Yes, let me shake the preacher's hand. It's easy to do that. But how about... In the preaching, having heard that you are not doing what you should in your life, and what you should in your life is to go outside and live in the wild in a booth of branches for a week. Would that get you as excited? I don't preach things like that very much. I preach about things like, can you turn the television off? 
Can you listen to Christian music? Can you lengthen your skirts? Can you do what's right morally? But I love their attitude. They went and did it with great joy and zeal in Nehemiah 8. Let's go to verse 3. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, The therefore is because he's staying in Galilee and not going to Judea, but now there's a feast on the calendar that should call him down there, and so his brethren press him to go, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Now he had disciples also in Galilee, and so there's an elliptical construction here that thy disciples there may also see your miracles. Okay, let's work on this verse for a little bit. His brethren therefore said unto him, Who are these brethren? Are they his cultural brethren? Because they're Jews or proselytes to the Jews' religion? Are they national brothers because they're citizens of the same nation? Are they spiritual brothers because they're all in Christ Jesus? Or are they biological brothers because they are his physical siblings? We choose the latter. Because it says in verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. If it was any other than his physical or biological brethren, it wouldn't have verse 5. Because it's making them a different group from the ones that haven't believed on him to this point. And the ones that haven't believed on him to this point were his cultural and national brethren. These are biological brothers of Jesus Christ our Lord. Children of Mary. Roman Catholics believe the heresy that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She never had intercourse with Joseph and was a virgin her entire life. That contradicts Matthew 1.25 and Luke 2.7 where it says that Joseph did not know her or have intercourse with her until she brought forth her firstborn son. Ha 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 ha. Yes, in a King James Bible, but in every other version it's brought forth a son. But it says firstborn son in a King James Bible in Matthew 1.25 because there were other sons as well. And we know about those other sons. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Holding your place at John 7, let us go to Matthew 13. We love your word, O Lord, and we believe every word of it. And we are now going to deal a blow to the man of sin from a Bible that was translated and dedicated that it would bring a blow to the man of sin by properly translating verses like Matthew 1.25 that she brought forth her firstborn son. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, what country would that be? Galilee. He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So we know the names of four of the brothers of Jesus our Lord and his Sisters, are they not both with us? Are you with me? Do you want to learn the word of God? How many must it be at a minimum to use the word all? Three. Because it doesn't use both. It uses all. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Or it would have used both if it was two. So it's three or more. Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. So he is back at Nazareth in his hometown, in his home country, and we have given to us 
three un or more unnamed sisters and four named brothers. Roman Catholics say that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's one of their pet little doctrines. And so it doesn't bother them when a married Catholic woman doesn't have sex with her husband because after all, they're looking somewhat like Mary. It is not pressed upon them the duties and there are men that have Catholic wives that love the Lord Jesus Christ and are red-blooded, full male Christian men that are denied and defrauded by their Catholic wives. The Bible says it's a sin to defraud your spouse of reg regular, frequent sex the way your spouse wants it, when and where and how. Right. And so the Catholics are wrong on so many different levels. They have no Bible for their doctrine, and it's contrary to the rest of the Bible, and it's contrary to civility, because it's called due benevolence in the Bible, and that due benevolence is a euphemism for kindly giving sex the way your spouse wants it so that your spouse is not tempted outside the marriage. It's the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because the wife does not have power, authority, or privilege over her body, the husband does. And the husband does not have power or authority or privilege over his body. The wife can have it however she wants it, whenever she wants it, wherever she wants it, and as often as she wants it. That's the word of God in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now Mary was a righteous woman. And for the Catholic doctrine to be true, she was a terribly cruel, vicious, wicked, odious woman. But their doctrine is not true. Mary would have been a faithful wife in the marriage bed because marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled in Hebrews chapter 13. Joseph and Mary being godly spouses, they had frequent sex. No wonder they had at least seven children beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had at least four brothers and three sisters by Mary. If God intends cousins, and this is how a Catholic theologian or apologists will argue that the word brethren refers to his cousins. That Jesus had cousins in John chapter 7 and verse 3. If God intends cousin, he says cousin, not brother or nephew. In Luke chapter 1, when we are introduced to Elizabeth and Mary, does God know the difference between cousins and nephews or brothers or sisters? Yes, he does. Because it says plainly that Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. Jesus' biological father. See? Are you listening? Jesus' legal father and biological father, in a certain respect, was David. What did David say about this unique person in his family tree? Let's go to Psalm 69 and find it. This is a death blow to the argument that when it says brethren in John chapter 7 and verse 3, that it may mean cousins. It may mean that Joseph married another woman later. And so these brothers were only half brothers. Joseph was the father, but it was another woman. Can we deal a death blow to that with your King James Bibles? Yes. Do you love the Word of God with me? This is our Lord. He wanted us to know these things. Right. He takes us inside His family. God does. Takes us inside the family of the Lord Jesus Christ to see that His brothers didn't believe on Him. We're in Psalm 69. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you that it is. Verse 9. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Where is that quoted? John chapter 2. What event caused it to be quoted? Purging of the temple and the scourging of the money changers there. The disciples were watching it, and all of a sudden the Lord brought to their memory Psalm 69, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In John chapter 2, we've already learned this. I'm surprised that 150 voices didn't say it at once. John 2. It's okay. We have Bible search computers. 
and apps on your phones that will do it for you. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We know it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and the reproaches of them that reproach thee. Those that were the enemies of God are fallen upon me because when he would talk about the Father and the Son, they would reproach them both. And they're fallen upon Christ because he was on earth. So we back up one verse and here's what it says. I am become a stranger unto my brethren. Does that sound like John 7, 3? Using the word brethren for them. I am become a stranger unto my brethren. For the brethren of Jesus not to believe on him, he must have been a stranger to them. What in the world? Why in the world didn't those brothers believe on Jesus, their oldest brother? We're going to get to that in a minute. If it weren't for the grace of God, we will never believe on him. Those that were the closest to him saw him for 30, 25, 20, 15 years, did not believe on him, though they knew firsthand that he was unique in every way from them. But they did not believe. Listen, this is, to me, John 7 and verse 5 is so full of total depravity that those brothers did not believe on their oldest brother. They had every reason to. They could have asked him anything. They could have sat down with mom and dad and asked any question. Why did you spend the first two years of your marriage in Egypt? Would that have been a decent question to ask parents? What would have come out of that? Oh, yes. But even if it would have come out, but for grace, we don't believe. Right. Are you thankful that you believe this morning? Amen. Lord, thank you for saving us. Amen. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for Christ dying for us. Thank you for the Spirit regenerating us. Thank you for sending preachers to teach us, for opening our hearts, our ears, and our eyes to what they taught. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. So now how close are these brethren to Jesus? They're Mary's children. Because Mary was Jesus' mother, Mary was their mother. And so we have the word brethren defined for us in a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. My mother's children, his brethren, children of Mary, his brethren. When considering the brothers, and there were sisters as well, but when considering the brothers of our Lord, let's consider the relationship just a little. Jesus was the firstborn son. He was the older brother. He was the heir in Jewish scheme of things. He was the leader in the family behind the father. Why didn't they believe on him? Why are they pushing him around? Why are little brothers trying to tell their older brother when he should go, where he should go, and why he should go? Verse 5 is going to tell us why they didn't believe on him. They thought he was an imposter. If you have anything that's real and substantial, why don't you go show it down there where there's more educated eyes and uh, Bible-knowledgeable men to test it. Why don't you go down there and try it on them? Show yourself to the world. And by the world, he meant they meant the Jewish world right. down there in Judea, in Jewry. They weren't exhorting him to go to Cairo or to Rome, or to anywhere else, because the issue was the Feast of Tabernacles down there in Jerusalem. After 20 or 30 years of observing him, they still did not believe on him. Though he was the Messiah in all observable evidence, they rejected their older brother. Though he knew them intimately in detail, he never used it against them. What a relationship went on for 30 years he knew every secret sin of theirs inside and outside. Do you understand that? He never used it against them. They had all the opportunities in the world to know that he was of a different moral character than any of them. All the news about him would have traveled to that house for Mary to hear about it. All the miracles that he was doing, that John the Baptist announced him as the Messiah down there at the Jordan on the way to Jerusalem. But they didn't believe. This is depravity. This is the bent of men against Jesus Christ. He is the hardest thing in the world to believe. But he's the easiest for us by grace to believe. 
When I read these nine verses, when I work these nine verses, when I humble myself before these nine verses and pray over these nine verses, I want to love him and promote him and defend him and preach him and teach him and love him to make up for all the ones that wouldn't do any of those things for him. And I wish that it would affect all of you the same. And that's why I'm preaching to you this morning. Let us be the ones that will be faithful to him. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. If you'll increase our faith, we'll direct it all towards you. We are nothing without you, and we know nothing without knowing you. The knowledge of Christ is everything. But they didn't believe. So his brethren talked to him and tried to tell him what he ought to do. What did his brethren say to him and why? For a difference is obviously exposed right here in this verse. They challenged or dared him to go to the feast in Judea to expose himself. They had a line of reasoning that we're going to get in the next verse that was due to their disbelief in him. He didn't, they didn't believe. That's why verse 5 is there to explain to us that verses 3 and 4 are not good intentions. Verses 3 and 4 are unbelieving intentions toward him. Right. They're urging him, who should have known better, was calloused and cruel toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice a few things about their unbelief. They presumed to have the ability to instruct him. He was their creator. They showed great disregard for his life by the danger that was in Judea. That's why he was in Galilee and it was understood. They may have hoped that Jewish leadership would have discovered his flaws, faults, or fake miracles. They may have hoped to get rid of him out of their coasts of Galilee. They implied his lack of care for Judean followers and, and their needed encouragement. They implied he was not like honest or great men to allow public scrutiny of his ministry. They could not recognize his humility or wisdom and had none themselves. They skeptically spoke of his miracles as whether he could, they could take scrutiny. When they said to him, in the last sentence of verse 4, If thou doest these things... What do you mean, if thou doest these things? He did do those things. They did not perceive in Jesus anything beyond their own carnal worldview. They saw the potential for personal gain if he obtained some notoriety in Judea because they were his brothers. These are all kinds of things that we know none of for certain, but we know that they had a twisted view of Jesus Christ and there is some combination of those things that make up their view of him. We are not told to what degree it is ignorance and what degree it is malice, but it is some of both. Ignorance and malice toward him. In this third verse, when they try to tell him what to do, depart hence. You can leave Galilee now and go into Judea, they tell him in the middle part of verse 3. Though obvious that he chose to stay in Galilee and likely why, they opposed him. We know why, and it should have been known there why because it was common knowledge that they wanted to kill him down in Judea, especially Jerusalem. They wanted Jesus to return to Judea and Jerusalem where the Jews could kill him. Their reasons that they used were to encourage the disciples down there and to expand his audience. Well, Jesus was going to expand his audience in his own timetable, and did he ever? Amen. Did he get all the villages of Did he get all the villages of Israel covered? The Bible says he did. Did he, did he have his apostles start at Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the world? Yes, he did. Did he get his gospel to us 2,000 years later and a number of thousands of miles distant? Amen. Yes, he did. But not on their timetable and not on ours. We always need to remember that. Every conversion is such a great demonstration of the power of God, the providence of God, the purpose of God, and the love of God, we should be willing to wait until it's a real conversion and not try to help God by bringing about false conversions, right. weak conversions. Paul didn't want any conversion, but that was which was based on the power of God right. in a life. We want to have the same spirit. That thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. We elliptically understand that thy disciples there in Judea or in Jewry also, in addition to the disciples that are here in Galilee, may see the works that thou doest. 
since many already believed on Jesus in Judea, he could do his miracles for them there also, is what his brothers are pushing at him. They, like many pompous types today, did not appreciate his intent. And we want to always understand the intent of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 4. Let me read it to you. Matthew 8 and verse 4, Jesus has just healed a leper. The leper said to the Lord when he met him, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Matthew 8, 3, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. I love this little exchange. Lord, if thou wilt. That's why we say if the Lord will, we'll do this or that. Because if the Lord's will is in the matter, that's all the power and providence and protection you need. You can pursue it with passion. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. The same thing takes place in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus tells, he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Because Jesus was not a self-promoter. And so my point right here is, these brothers, with just a carnal worldview of religion, just a carnal worldview of how to expand an audience, are reasoning naturally rather than spiritually. Jesus reasoned spiritually, tell no man, because he was not a self-promoter. The Bible had prophesied of him in Isaiah 42 and verse 2, he will not lift up his voice in the streets. And so he didn't. You know, some of these men that he told, don't tell anyone, they went and told everyone. Did they go to hell for that? No. Did he rebuke them for that? No. But he had done his part. He was not a self-promoter. Sometimes he told, like the Gadarene, go home and tell thy friends and thy family what great things God hath done for thee. That was on the other side of the sea. But he was not a self-promoter. And so the, the, the brothers of Jesus here are showing that they have a very worldly view of how to expand an audience and how to enhance and use the evangelism of Jesus. And they were wrong. And Jesus was right. And that brings us to the end of John chapter 7 and verse 3. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Take your red hymnals and let's sing number 460 that is found there. And let's understand the words of this song as referring to the work of grace that God has done in our lives to give the blind man seeing eyes right. that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, which even his brothers couldn't see.